The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. And then he turned towards me, and his face was a diagnosis. And I began to wonder, you know, because this guy has acromegaly, no question about it. And I wondered if anyone had told him that. And then I began to wonder what was my obligation as a physician. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. Welcome to this episode of Annals on Call. This episode features Dr. Faith Fitzgerald. Dr. Fitzgerald is Professor Emeritus at University of California at Davis School of Medicine, where she's worked for over 30 years. She's had multiple other jobs in medical education, but the most important thing uh, that I would like to say about Faith is that she's one of my heroes. I saw her first at an ACP meeting discussing unknown cases. I was mesmerized and totally impressed with her ability to work through cases and teach at the same time. I got to know Faith when I joined the Board of Regents, and she was on the Board of Regents, and over many conversations learned of her love for patients, for the field of internal medicine, and doing what's right uh, for her patients at all times. She writes brilliantly, especially in the On Being a Doctor series, and this episode will feature two of her essays. The first of these essays is titled The Jumbo Man in the Jumbo Mart. It appeared in the October 18th issue, 2018, of the Annals of Internal Medicine. The second essay is titled I Can't Be Bothered. It appeared in the February 19th, 2008 issue of the Annals of Internal Medicine. I'm certain that you will enjoy our wide-ranging conversation about what it means to be a physician and what these stories tell us. Well, Faith, welcome to Annals on Call. I'm a great admirer of the pieces you've written in the column on being a doctor. And one really struck me, the story of the Jumbo Man. And I was wondering if you could tell the story in your own words, and then we'll talk about what all this means. Well, the Jumbo Man was an interesting guy. I was uh, shopping at the Jumbo Mart, and so it's titled The Jumbo Man in the Jumbo Mart. And I was out there to buy a tube of toothpaste because it was a little more expensive there than in places like Bel Air or uh, Safeway. But uh, there weren't that many people in there. On this day, I'm looking for where the toothpaste is, and I find there's a sign that says, here's health and beauty products and antacids and antiseptics and ointments. And uh, finally, I turn that title because it says toothpaste. And I couldn't get to the toothpaste because there's this big man in the aisle blocking me. 
and he's filling his grocery cart with um, all sorts of deodorants. And he keeps throwing them into the cart, and I can't get by him. So I sort of uh, hoped to be noticed and allowed to pass, and he did move over a little, though he didn't turn to look at me yet. And uh, then I knew right away why he needed the deodorant. He smelled terrible. So I turned back and tried to turn around, and he heard this squeak of the wheels on my grocery cart. And then he turned towards me, and his face was a diagnosis. I mean, he had this prominent brow and thick and greasy skin and a bulbous nose and this big jutting jaw and gaps between his teeth and a really deep voice in which he said, sorry, and pulled his card out of my way. So I forgot about the toothpaste, and I went by him as quickly as I could and wound up uh, buying cookies. And I began to wonder, I, you know, because this guy has acromegaly, no question about it. And I wondered if anyone had told him that. And then I began to wonder what was my obligation as a physician, because I'm a total stranger. And I meet a guy in the supermarket, and I'm supposed to say, by the way, did you know you had a pituitary tumor? And the reason I was concerned about it was that when I was at the University of Michigan, um, a man was admitted to the ICU there because he was found down on the streets. And his family was called in to see him. And I asked them whether they'd noticed the gradual changes that must have occurred in his appearance because he was prototypic acromegalic. And the answer I got from them was, no, he's always been kind of ugly. No. As was the case with the man in Michigan and many, many others with the disease, the jumbo man might or might not have known what was happening to him. That his brain, his heart, his lungs, all of it was just carrying on, and then presumably he had uh, pituitary apoplexy. So I wrestled with my conundrum with this guy, the guy in the jumbo mart, and I saw him pass by heading to the checkout line. And I was still uncertain, but I followed him and got in line just behind him. And he was paying the teller, and she turned to put the money in the cash register, and I did, then decided what to do. I, I was waiting for her to push the cash register, and it went ka-ching. And as that word was said, I said one word, acromegaly. And he turned around to look at me and replied in a very low-pitched, coarse voice, yeah, surgery coming up. So I got a number of emails from the readers of this, which was, let me see, when, when was it? Um, 2018, way back, telling me the same story where they're seeing these, these patients with pituitary disease, uh, acromegaly, and not quite sure what to do. And several of them said, well, you know, I just mentioned it to him, almost invariably a him. And uh, it became three to four emails about their adventures with making diagnoses of acromegaly because it was so evident just by looking. And that's the story of the Jumbo Man and the Jumbo Mark. So in reflecting, and, and the piece is wonderful, and I encourage everyone to find this piece in the Annals of Internal Medicine and read it because uh, you've written it so beautifully. Uh-huh. But as you've, as you've thought about this and as you got uh, emails from other people who had talked about this. What does this say about being a physician and our responsibility when we see people, acquaintances, and we think there's something wrong and they may or may not know? Do we have a responsibility to people who are not our own patients? I think it makes a difference as to how serious we believe the case to be. 
because this fellow with the acromegaly was of an age, and I'd already seen this one guy just knock out. And um, I think, so it depends. If somebody has acne rosacea, I generally won't turn around and say, do you have acne rosacea? Because you look like it. But I will do it with such things as skin lesions, for example, uh, melanoma or basal cell that they're not paying attention to because it's beyond their uh, reach with their eyes. Or people who uh, stop walking and put their hand on their chest periodically. And I'm thinking, maybe they're getting angina there, and maybe we should talk about this. And then uh, there's the patient who has uh, pica and is very, very anemic. And they're eating ice. As a, well, because ice eating is um, something that people who are very anemic do. I had a chief resident at San Francisco who um, came in looking very warm, very pale, and um, he was eating ice out of a big bottle of, uh, sorry, big cup of, of ice. And I'm thinking, there's something very wrong with this guy. Does he know? And he didn't. And what he had was a, uh, a slow bleed. Oh, and then there's the patient who doesn't know whether or not they have mixed edema, but when you say, you know, you might have this thyroid problem. They say, what thyroid problem? <laughs> yeah, so I think, I think that we are in a life-threatening sort of state, uh, obliged by our promise to at least tell this person that they might want to check with their doctor about this. As you were talking about the ice, when I was in Richmond, I had multiple patients who had iron deficiency and rather than eating ice, they would buy Argo starch. Yeah. And, and just, and they, and I'd ask them about this is, why'd you buy Argo starch? Says, I don't know, but I just had to eat it. Yeah, it's, it's uh, fascinating. Of course, we see that also in uh, young people who are trying to get as skinny as they possibly can. And uh, that's not, not the issue for me. It's the person who has got profound um, anemia and just doesn't know, hasn't thought of it, hadn't had it checked out. And the, the interesting thing is that this, this young man that I was telling you about was a chief resident and nobody mentioned it to him. Hey, you know, you're looking pretty pale. Uh, didn't say it. When I was a house officer, the ward clerk in the coronary care unit, over the period of about a year or two with house staff and attendings going in and out every month, slowly developed diabetes, slowly developed hypertension. Uh -huh. One of the attendings comes in two years later, looks at her and says, I think you have Cushing's. And she yeah. did. Yeah. And, and she was cured because uh, he did come and uh, she did get uh, treated. This yeah. other beautiful article, uh, this one is over 10 years old. I can't be bothered. And as I read this one, yeah. It struck home so poignantly about what our responsibilities are to patients and to colleagues. And maybe you could tell a little bit about that story and the frustration that you had in trying to get in touch with another physician about their patient. Well, one of the things that I found interesting was the frequency with which I was uh, talking to someone, for example, like a student or a colleague or a patient. And it always began with the same words, I hate to bother you. And I'm thinking, well, that's, I'm, you know, that's what I do. <laughs> it's not bothering me. And there was a patient for whom I was the attending on the general medicine service. 
and that patient died several hours in the mid of night, and nobody told me the death was expected, but I'd emphasized uh, to the house staff and nurses that I wanted to be notified if there were any significant changes, and I sort of thought dying was a significant change. And then I asked both the nurse on shift and the night float covering resident why they hadn't called me, and their answer was the same. It was late last night. I didn't want to bother you. And I thought, boy. And then in my office, I had a, um, a secretary who came in complaining of faintness and headache, and I had her lie down on the couch and, and took her blood pressure. It was 210 over 160. So I called and they sent an ambulance, although it's about 100 yards away from the emergency room. And they took her there, and uh, she was under immediate therapy for hypertensive crisis and was in the ICU. Then came the really frustrating part, where I knew her doctor. I had asked her who it was. And I thought that I should let that man, a former graduate of my school, with whom I'd worked and knew was caring, that I should call and let him know that his patient collapsed in my office and that she was in the ICU. So I called the other hospital in which he was now working, and um, I got a mechanized answering machine which ran me through a whole series of numerical choices, beginning with the information that if my concern was a life-threatening emergency, I should hang up and call 911. And then there was an extraordinary number of inapplicable choices that followed and ended with me on hold uh, to Tinny Muzak, and then advertisements for the hospital. None of the choices offered the hope of connecting with the doctor, so I waited for a human being to talk to me, and finally I got this voice. This is the operator. Can I help you? So I explained who I was, and I needed to speak to the doctor of this patient uh, to tell her, uh, him rather, uh, what had happened, and that she was in our ICU. And the response to that was, what is your member number? I said, I don't have a member number. I'm a doctor. I just admitted your doctor's patient to our ICU, and I wanted to tell him what happened. Are you transferring the patient to our hospital? No. I'm trying to tell her doctor what happened. She's in our ICU. What doctor? So I told her the name of the doctor, and some moments went by. A lot of moments went by. And um, she said, he's scheduled to be in his clinic today. I said, fine. Can you put me through to the clinic? We can't do that. Oh, why not? We just don't do that. He's very busy. Would you like to talk to the telephone advice nurse? I don't need advice, I told her. I need to tell the doctor his patient's very sick, could die, and is in our ICU. Why don't you page him? Oh, fine, give me his pager number. We don't give those out. <laughs> Wait a minute. Uh, I think I Joseph Hell wrote a book about this. Yeah, yeah. I asked then, how can I reach him? And I, uh, she said, I can transfer you to the overhead page operator. One moment, please. So one moment. Five minutes passed, again with Muzak and ads about health maintenance programs, and then came a real person's voice on the line, which was a familiar voice. It was the operator I had begun with. She said, can I help you? I said, yes. Didn't I just talk to you? You were going to put me through to the page operator. Oh, yes. Sorry, I'll try again. Then back to Muzak and recorded repetitive messages about periodic mammography and lipid screening and the virtues of exercise. And then I got a call from the page operator who picked up. Can I help you? Oh, glory. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I explained who I was and why I wanted to find my patient's doctor. Can you call or page him for me? I was told he's in the clinic. 
I can pitch him overhead, but if he's in clinic, he won't hear it. The overhead system can only be heard in the hospital, not the clinic. Well, why page him overhead if it won't work? <laughs> because it's all I can do. Can't you beep or call him in his clinic? We don't do that. He's very busy. Would you like to speak to the advice nurse? Okay. And then there was this endless interlude of music and ads, and I began to slump. And then a voice again. It's hospital operator. Can I help you? And it was the same one that I spoke to at the beginning. And then she hung up on me. And I gave up, thinking if ancient Rome had been so well defended, it never would have fallen to the barbarians. And the patient was transferred to her own hospital and her own doctor several days later. But I don't know if the system ever told her Dr. Hyatt called. Patients in my own hospital and clinic um, system tell me that their attempts to reach their doctors here are equally frustrating. And I've had similar difficulties in contacting my own hospital colleagues in their clinics and offices. I can circumnavigate the system, but patients can't. When I think of these two stories, which are so different, but yet they all speak to what it means to be a physician, what it means to yeah. be an internist. Yes. And what are you supposed to do? And it certainly isn't to navigate around trying to help the patient. And that's the easy way to do it. It's just, you know, a phone notification is no apology for bothering me. And the assumption is that I would, no, I, I got a, a call. This was several days after she was off to the other hospital. And it was an administrator's assistant. It says the committee meets at 10 a.m. on Tuesday. This is phone notification. And she gave no apology for bothering me, simply the assumption that I would be there, because committees are really important. Right. Committees are more important than people. So um, I tell patients and residents and students they should call me. They are not interruptions to my work. They are my work. And I can't be bothered by them. A yeah. system culture designed to protect doctors from their patients assume I'm bothered and so give the same impression to those trying to reach me, and that really bothers me. And by the way, it continues. It hasn't gotten better, has it? Yeah, yeah. But what, I, what, I think the physicians, uh, because of the honor that we are done by getting into other people's uh, lives, um, should feel compelled in cases in which danger is present in that person that you don't know um, to see, make certain that they get to see their doctor or, you know, if they're having difficulty to at least go to a place where they understand that, that people know what, what's going on with her. And that was not likely to happen with this. It's like trying to get through a, uh, a closed moat, you know, when you're heading into a castle. You just can't get by it. It's and, interesting. I've, I've talked to a lot of hospitalists yeah. Um, and whether we should have hospitals or not is uh, another discussion. But when I talk to them, they often have difficulty getting in touch with the outpatient physician, having yeah. a conversation with them. And yeah. likewise, the outpatient physician has a hard time reaching the hospitalist. And it seems like we've developed this crazy system where we partition care rather than making sure that we have complementary care. And the outpatient physician often has information that would help the inpatient physician and vice versa. Yes, exactly so. And I think it should be part of our work. You know, I, uh, it's, it's interesting that 
over these many years, and I've taken care of some of my patients now for 30 years, uh, they just call me, and uh, they all have my beeper, <laughs> and then, then we can get things settled pretty quickly. But finding someone else isn't easy, because all of the barriers go up just to uh, keep oneself from getting involved. I, I used to think that getting involved was the best part of, <laughs> of being a doctor. Right, but uh, apparently it's not financially compensated. No, that, that part's true, and it appears to me now that your excellence is adjudicated not on how well you take care of people, but on how much money you earn for the system. And you get no money for you know talking to a patient saying you should talk to your doctor, and it's, it's, it's a shame. But the good news is all of these young people who are at vast expense to them now, um, coming up in the ranks, uh, are going to change that. They're going to go out and take care of people. And uh, we have a, a new generation coming up, which is not controlled uh, by a system that thinks the system's benefit is better than the individual patient's benefit. Does that make sense? It does. Uh, yeah. and, and many people who are in the latter stages of their careers like you and I are, yeah. uh, lament uh, the younger generation. But I think working with them, and I, I'm still very active on the inpatient side, and I know you are too. Yeah. When you work with interns and residents, they are really enthusiastic about caring for people. Yes. And they figure ways to get around the bureaucracy probably better than I do. Oh, yes. No, I, I think that's true. Um, on the other hand, there is this, this uh, trouble with um, more or less the uh, uh, imitation that they undergo uh, as third and fourth year students where they more or less speak in acronyms, that many of which I don't understand. It turns out they don't know what they mean either. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I have full, uh, full hope. Let's say. So, uh, they'll come around when they can. To, to wrap this up, as I thought about these uh, these two wonderful essays, yeah. it, it said something about um, the Hippocratic Oath, the Oath of Maimonides, why we became physicians in the first place. And maybe mm -hmm. you could give me your thoughts, because I know you've thought deeply about what it means to be a physician and what our responsibility is to patients, uh, to non-patients, to our colleagues, etc. And uh, if you could just uh, comment on that for a, for a minute or two, I think yeah. that this will tie up really nicely This uh, these two wonderful stories that are different, but yet they're not that different. Well, you know, I, I was wondering about that and why I chose to do that. There are no doctors in my family. I had very little <laughs> contacts with, uh, with physicians. And... Um, I think it was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle that brought me on. Um, he himself was an ophthalmologist and uh, a very good writer, and in order to support his family, he started writing these stories about his old teacher, who was a keen observer and took care of people. And I thought, boy, I'd like to do that. I would like to hear the stories and see the people and make them better. And then that, that was done. I was just This is what I do. It's uh, sort of Sherlock Holmes uh, as the paradigm of the solver of problems. 
by observation and discussion and the variety of other things. So I don't I don't have any kind of setting in my mind that says here's what a doctor is or does other than looking down to see what the criminal is and how they're acting and how they're injuring people and then if I possibly can find out who the malefactor is which could be an infection or a tumor or um, psychiatry or who cares and making them feel better and be better and that's what uh, the solving of problems um, just entranced me and I've never regretted it I have loved every day of it and will continue to do Faith, you've been an inspiration to many of us for many years. Uh, uh, I was inspired by many of you. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the wonderful thing about medicine is, is we inspire our colleagues and our colleagues inspire us. Yeah. And most of all, our patients inspire us. And yeah, um, uh, as I read this, I uh, see your love for patients, your belief in doing the right thing for your patients yeah. And uh, and for your learners, and uh, it's uh, these are very encouraging stories. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you uh, being on this podcast, and I think our listeners will thoroughly enjoy your stories and your understanding of uh, what a physician really is. Yeah, and and I've got stories in process now at the Annals uh, that will somehow tell people how wonderful the patients are. And well, one- that sounds like the, an invitation for us to do another podcast in several oh. months, uh, oh. because uh, in reading your stories previously, it's very clear to me how much you fit that famous adage, the secret to patient care is caring for the patient. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's a good one. And it's true, and it's it's extraordinarily gratifying to be able to do that. Well, thanks again. Pleasure. Until next time. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. I hope you enjoyed the conversation I had with Faith Fitzgerald as much as I enjoyed having that conversation. Faith's stories and her conversation puts being an internist into a very special perspective. Her love of the field, her devotion to patients, her curiosity at figuring out what's wrong with the patient and trying to do what's best in patient care at all times is something that energizes me when I think of it. I wish everyone could sit down and talk with Faith for an hour. It would be very delightful for you. You would learn a lot about medicine as well as about many other topics. The big lesson that I got from these stories is that as interns, we have responsibilities that are very important and yet very rewarding. I found this to be a very upbeat conversation, and I hope you found it to be that also. Thanks for listening.
For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.